The views and opinions expressed by the guests on the following program do not necessarily represent those of Mark Radio, The Shepherd, or its advertisers. From the studios of The Shepherd Radio Network, it's Afternoons with Mike. This next hour is all about our walk with Jesus with local pastors, newsmakers, people who are making a difference for the gospel. Now, here is your host, Mike Gilland. Hey friends, and welcome to our program today, Afternoons with Mike. On the line with me, a group and organization that we've had represented in a number of ways over the last couple of months is Child Evangelism Fellowship, a group that has been around for a long time. The executive vice president is Moses Estevis, and he's on the line right now. Welcome to the program, Moses. Thank you for having me, Mike. Again, you have a vision to reach every child, every nation, every day. Now, that is quite a goal, and you guys have been doing this again for a long time. Isn't that right? Yes. Our founder, uh, Mr. Overholzer, uh, started evangelizing children in the 20s. The ministry actually got formally organized in 1937. Uh, So the ministry has been going strong uh, for 86 years. We have 400 offices in the USA, uh, 3,600 staff around the world, ministry in most nations of the world. God is just opening doors, and and uh, we love teaching the Bible, sharing the gospel with boys and girls. There's been a lot of attacks going on, and in recent, I know that you've even made the news nationally with the Good News Clubs being attacked by, of all people, the Satanic Church. And so before we get into this attack, tell us about these Good News Clubs. Uh Certainly. Uh, so we have many ministries. Good News Club is one of our core ministries, so teaching the Bible to boys and girls uh, every week. So it's Good News Club is a high-energy uh, club for children, includes songs, memory verse, Bible lesson, games, prayer, etc. And um, and we've, we hold these all over. I think we have about 80,000 of these around the world, and of course many here in the USA. But in 2001, <clears throat> the United States Supreme Court uh, gave us a victory on a vote six to three that it is constitutional for CEF to have good news clubs in public schools. Um, after the last bell rings, right next to other activities, extracurricular activities in the school, that we could not be discriminated uh, because of our Christian content. So that was a victory in 2001. Uh, groups of atheists have tried over the years. Uh, since they cannot defeat us in in the court, uh, they try to defeat us uh, through uh, publicity and so on. And we've, you know, received a number of attacks from them. This is one of those attacks. Um, the after school Satan clubs, as they target specifically schools where we have good news clubs, and then they come in and try to plant a Satan uh, an after school Satan club in those schools to create some problems, difficulties, eventually with a goal to kick us out. I think of Steve Martin, of all people, the comedian Steve Martin, who said, atheists got no songs. (laughs) They don't really have a great message to sing about. They don't have a great deal of hope to talk about. And yet, they don't get the same kind of resistance in this day and age that Christian clubs get, like what you're getting from just the mainstream media, from uh, the education system, uh, often will be very open to having these gender issue clubs, or like you said, the satanic club, the after school Satan club, and yet frown and give uh, the people who are on campus representing the Lord a bit of a hard time. And so tell us a little bit about what's been going on, how this particular round of attacks has been affecting CEF. Well, they their strategy is to uh, come to uh, select a school where we have a good news club. And then we finished in the spring with about uh, 2,500 uh, clubs and schools. We're going to start in the fall probably nearly with 3,000 because we're kind of revamping up after COVID. Some schools were opened up earlier, some opened up later, so we're kind of rebuilding post-COVID. But they pick a a school that has a good news club as their target, and then they come with a lot of publicity and invite all the media, and they come with this very scary message. And so their strategy is to um, 
to try to scare the community and mm-hmm. the school officials in a sense to uh, push them out. Because if they pushed out, then um, they can use our legal victory against us. And they say, well, you can't push us out if you have a good news club. In order for you to push us out, you got to push out the good news club too. And that's basically their strategy. And that's what they're doing, and that's what their attempts have been doing. And yet, I understand that they've been getting a bit of pushback from schools who are actually wanting more CEF Good News Clubs, right? Correct. Um, uh, you know, the school, we did a survey of, of principals some time back, and, and the results were just great. 87% of the principals were aware of positive impact of a good news club in the public school. So many times we have requests from, even from public schools, contact our local chapters asking for child evangelism fellowship to come and hold good news clubs in the schools because they talk to each other and they hear about the positive things that are happening. In contrast, uh, just for you to get an idea of the message that they bring, um, we can look at, for example, what happened in 2016 when when they erected in in Boca Raton, Florida, a 10-foot tall, 300-pound red pentagram fixture. And then they put the words on it, may the children hail Satan. you know, in, in contrast, in after-school good news clubs, we're going to raise the name of Jesus before the children, and they're going to learn about the amazing love and forgiveness that Jesus offers. In 2015, in Detroit, they unveiled uh, the statue of a devilish creature, mm-hmm. eight, eight and a half foot tall, I think 3,000 pounds, it's half the weight of an elephant, a massive thing. 700 people who attended had to sell their souls to Satan to get a ticket for the ceremony. Now contrast that with the After School Good News Clubs, where children will hear the gospel of Christ and will be given an opportunity to place their faith in Christ. Um, Actually, in that statue, they also uh, put two children, there's two bronze children, looking with devotion to this satanic creature. Mm. And one has their hand over their heart. Uh, Contrast that with the After School Good News Club, where children will learn about God and become followers and worshipers of the Almighty God. So the the message couldn't be more different. And uh, and when it's time, because every child that comes to an after school Good News Club has uh, the parent has to sign a parental permission slip, and the same thing with their clubs. It's obvious which club the parents are going to choose. Mm-hmm. Now you would think that there would be no one that would be open for these kind of after-school Satan clubs to be there. Again, I, I, I think, and this is what boggles my thinking, when I look at the numbers of increase of suicides in young people, when we know about the mental health risks and increases of problems of depression, and again, if not suicide, attempted suicides among young people, I just always wonder what these leaders of schools, and I know that in a real way, what I'm hearing you say is that they are they're ha- they have to be open to these groups, but what doesn't have to happen is the public awareness of the news media kind of pushing down and making it difficult for Christian groups and churches the way they do. Uh, it, it It just boggles my mind the way that these people who are in control will, in the face of rising numbers of suicides, uh, open the door for publicity for groups that have no hope, no positive message whatsoever. Isn't that what you found everywhere? Yes, I I completely agree with you that uh, kids today are under an enormous uh, pressure, Um, you know, from peer pressure to drugs to gangs to cyberbullying to Satan clubs, sexual predators, you know, porn addiction, depression, anxiety. And you're right, suicide rates have been climbing. Um, Actually, I read an article just a few days ago that there are too many children in mental health crisis for the ER to handle. The, The article is about all these kids showing up, suffering from anxiety, depression, suicidal thoughts, suicidal attempts. And the ER basically say, we're not ready for all this. And so you're right. The kids are under an enormous amount of pressure. And um, 
you know, the, whatever message that the Satan Club has to offer, that's not the message they need. They need a message of the gospel of a loving Savior, a loving God that cares for them and and uh, that can walk with them through life and help them in their in their journey. But what we're witnessing is, uh, you know, George Barna said this as a result of extensive research. He said this: whatever a child believes by age thirteen is in most cases what he will die believing. Mm-hmm. In That's other right. words, by the age of 13, their spiritual identity is largely set in place. So what it, what this means is there's a race to the child's heart. Not you know, It's not just the Christians that want to share the gospel with children. Every other group, every other ideology are coming down hard on kids, trying to win their hearts. And in uh, and, 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 and the it just adds to that pressure in the lives of the kids, and it's not helpful. And the result is is high levels of depression, suicide attempts, mm-hmm. and, and and so on and so forth. So, I think for the Christian, we got to go back to the words of our Lord in 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 Psalm seventy eight when he says we need to tell to the coming generation the glorious deeds of the Lord and his might and the wonders that he has done. That's our calling as Christians today. Someone shared the gospel with us. And now the Lord tells us, now you go share it with the next generation because God has a heart for the next generation. He says, tell to the coming generation. So that's our responsibility. Yes, all these other groups are trying to push and shove their ideology into the kids, but we have the obligation to pass the knowledge of God to the next generation. And we better do that well. Mm-hmm. Um, that's our responsibility. Now, there's one thing that every child who does that, they would have this going for them, whether these other groups can even fathom it or not. And I would think they probably don't. And that is the fact that they've got the power of God working behind them and working for them. And that power is not an insignificant factor in this whole discussion to have God's will, God's blessing upon children, because he cares for us more than we can think or imagine. So that's number one. Number two, and I'd like for you to comment on both of these. Number two would be this thing that happens, you know, pressure that you mentioned, it goes both directions. There can be also a positive peer pressure that happens when a group of young people attend these good news clubs and they become they become very sure of their faith in Jesus and that can become a, a greater force than what i think a lot of these groups take into account for they don't really uh, i guess weigh in on the impact that the positive testimony of young people who are being touched by god it it has a difference and is a difference maker in that school isn't it Absolutely. Absolutely. What you said is very important. When the Lord said, these are the words of our Savior, he said, let the children come to me, do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. If they come to the Christ, believe in the Lord, the Holy Spirit comes to live with them, and it's true, the Lord is with them for the rest of their lives. And that's going to make an incomplete difference in how they live their lives. And you are right, because when the children come to these club weekly good news clubs in the public schools and other locations, and they learn about God, they come to faith in, in God, in the Lord, then the power of the gospel starts doing its work. Okay, It's not mm-hmm. the power of the teacher, it's not the power of the visual, it's not the power of the songs, it's the power of the gospel. And I could tell you story after story, I'll, I'm reminded of of a story I heard recently of two uh, twin girls that were attending a good news club, after school good news club. And, uh, and of course God began working in their hearts and, and they, they, they were saved through faith in Christ and their behavior char- started changing. They would come home. And if kids, if kids are excited about something, that's all they talk about. These girls are talking about the Lord and the Bible, what they're learning in this club at home. Parents were not saved. Um, eventually, the parents start attending the church of the team that was teaching at the goodness club in the public school. And the, uh, the father was an alcoholic. And uh, through the ministry of the Holy Spirit in that family, he gave up. Uh, being an alcoholic, they gave up the alcohol, and and I saw in a video that it was a beautiful shot on this video of the entire family, mom and dad, and two girls being baptized at the same uh, baptismal service, 
uh, from that church that was teaching the Good News Club. So beautiful thing how a child comes to club, they find Christ, the power of the gospel working in their lives, then spreading to other family members. And I have I know many stories like that. That's just one example. And uh, another thing that we have have seen is is and that we do in Child Evangelism Fellowship is what we call children reaching children. And as we take the older children Good News Club and we um, pull, pull them aside and teach them how to share the gospel using the wordless book. And these mm-hmm. little evangelists are fearless. I mean, they will go and talk to 10, 20, 30, 40 uh, other kids about Christ. They come back and report how it went and so on. And uh, you're right. I mean, the, the, the impact and the fire and the zeal in their hearts to tell others about Jesus because Jesus has made a difference in their life. It's a beautiful thing. It is a beautiful thing. And, you know, when you think about people, young people, these kids that are being reached in these clubs who maybe have been going through a real rough time in their lives, and suddenly they they find what we know, the peace and the joy that comes in knowing God, the release from the guilt of our life. And even as a young person, they find that that is something that's a, it's a well that can't easily be capped and made quiet, even in the face of the threats of these people like these Satan groups. Now, you mentioned the 2001 ruling, which really opened the door for the Good News Clubs to be considered legal and and protected. I know that there was recently, uh, my good friend Matt Staver uh, was, was representing you, the Liberty Council in Rhode Island, right? Correct. The Liberty Council has worked with us for many years uh, in any legal case that happens with uh, uh, with our clubs in the public schools. And most of the time, when a, a CF staff approaches a principal superintendent to get permission, they get that permission. Every so often, there's some resistance, and Liberty Council will send a letter to clarify, you know, the Supreme Court decision and so on. And most of the times, that unlocks the doors. Every so often, you will still have a principal or superintendent that says, absolutely not. You cannot bring a Christian club into our public school, even though he's seen the paperwork from the Supreme Court. And in those cases, we will file a lawsuit for the right to be in the school, just like with the other groups that are there. And uh, again, those are not an enormous amount uh, of cases. They're a minority, but we have won 100% of those cases. And just recently, we won a case in the public school system in Providence, Rhode Island. Um, For two years, they were keeping us out. And finally, we we filed that lawsuit and it settled out of court and we won that case Um, because we have the right to do it. It, it, Here's the beautiful thing is the, 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 the schools where we're in, the, the the principals themselves see the the results of the of the positive influence of the club. I remember watching a video from one of our clubbers, a kid that was talking on on camera, and I have it. It's I, I enjoy watching it once in a while. He says he he admits that he was a bully. <laughs> he used to bully other children, mm-hmm. and then he says, "Well, since I started attending Good News Club, I stopped bullying." And he said this, this is his words, Good Good News Club helped me to become a better person spiritually and behavior-wise. It can really change somebody around. Now, we know it's not a club that does that. It's the power of the gospel. And so the school officials, when they have a club in their school, they tell us that office referrals go down. You know, there's improved behavior, and so office, uh, you know, school problems go down, office referrals go down. So... uh, there's, it, it, it's a really positive, not just what happens spiritually in the lives of the children and the families, but it's a really positive experience for the school itself to have that good news club there. Moses, thank you for being with us today. From CEF, the Child Evangelism Fellowship, we appreciate the work that you're doing, and we thank you so much for it, my friend. You're welcome. I'd love to encourage your, your listeners to visit cefonline.com. CEFonline.com. There, they can. Uh, there's a place where you. It's called. We call it a chapter finder. They can put their zip code, find the closest CEF office to them, contact that CEF office, go visit a club, uh, get involved, help us reach the next generation for Christ. God bless you, and we'll be back in a moment, my friends. Much. This is afternoons with Mike. Pastors and financial leaders, do you need expert accounting or tax help? Do you have payroll or 1099 questions? 
do you need a ministry expert to help you acquire real estate for your next project? If the answer is yes, yes, and yes, visit PetraWorldwide.org. Petra Worldwide has been strengthening ministries to transform humanity since 2007. Visit PetraWorldwide.org or call 855-481-9095. Palm Beach Atlantic University Orlando offers three distinct areas of study. An evening Master's of Science in Clinical Mental Health Counseling, an evening Bachelor's of Science in Human Services, and our new Daytime Bachelor's of Science in Nursing. All of our courses are offered at our beautiful campus on Millennia Boulevard. For more information or to schedule a tour, call 844-PBA-ORLANDO. That's 844-PBA-ORLANDO. With me right now on the line, Nina May. Nina is a filmmaker. Let me tell you a little bit about her background. She is the founder and chairman of the Renaissance Women, which is an educational nonprofit foundation with international and production training programs and opportunities for internships on media projects. She's a filmmaker, as I said. She's, and that's what we're going to be talking about today. Uh, she has a series that's out, and you can watch it on Freevee, on a number of other um, places like Amazon Prime and Tubi. It's called Daily Bread. So I'd like to welcome back filmmaker Nina May. Welcome back. Well, thank you for having me. I appreciate it. So this thing, that I, I got to watch a little bit of the episode one in your series, this thing called Daily Bread. Now, the the background on this, it's it's a post-apocalyptic America after a solar flare. Now, I, I, you and I were talking before we began this program. There was a time that I would have thought most people who watched post-apocalyptic movies would probably have in the back of their mind, that could never happen in America. That could never happen in our real world. So you see these movies and they're all kind of, they, some of them anyway, are kind of scary, freaky. Uh, Will Smith did one. It, it We watched and my goodness, you'd think, Lord, let that never be the case. Well, this one, what you're talking about is something that could actually happen to our world, right? It, it absolutely could. In fact, scientists say that it's not a matter of if, <clears throat> excuse me, I got a frog in my throat. It's not a matter of if, but when. Mm. And uh, way back in 1859, there was something called the Carrington event that uh, it, it was so powerful that it electrified the, phone, the um, telegraph wires and set paper on fire. And they said if that event happened today, it literally would knock us back to the Middle Ages. Wow. And, uh, it, and it would impact the entire world. It's not just when a solar flare hits, it's not just one part of the world because the world is spinning at a thousand miles an hour and there's a pulse on the, on the flare. And so it might take up to 36 hours for the entire world to be impacted by it, but it eventually will all fall apart. And, um, and we wanted to do something that had hope because you say, okay, if the, if the scientists are saying it's not a matter of if, but when this happens, it's nothing you can control. If tell all the climate change control people, <laughs> there's not a thing they could do to stop a solar flare. Uh, we didn't want it to be a pandemic. We didn't want it to be aliens or zombies or mm -hmm, right. um, man-delivered EMP or something. We wanted it to be basically God flicking a switch and saying, okay, no more electricity. How are you going to get along now? <laughs> How are you going to deal with each other now? So the whole purpose of it is to not just talk about the concept of surviving, but actually thriving. And if you look at history, I mean, it's only been in the last, you know, maybe 150, 100, not even that, maybe 120 years that we've had electricity to the extent that we have it today. So people lived without electricity. They lived without electric lights and and uh, cars and automobiles and televisions and you know, all the things that we have. And we've become so dependent on it. If an emergency like this happened, would people be ready for it? How would they deal with it? And would they want to help their neighbor? Would they, you know, be generous with what they've got or would they hunker down and become very um, sort of animalistic? Mm -hmm. And so what I, I did, my, my cast is an ensemble cast of eight. It was seven. Then it turned into eight um, millennial women. And they're the cast and crew of a cooking show. And they're stranded on this beautiful farm 
out in the middle of nowhere in this beautiful house. So basically, it's kind of like the Garden of Eden. They've got everything they could possibly want. They've even got chickens for eggs. They've got a cow for milk. They've got the garden. They've even got an armory of, of weapons because their very famous parents are movie stars. And so he he's like a Clint Eastwood, and he always plays a part where he has a gun. So that explains why they've got guns and they can protect themselves. So the, the motto, or the, the I guess you call it the byline, the motto, whatever, of Daily Bread is, if you like God, guns, and girls, you're going to love Daily Bread. <laughs> oh, that's so that, so <laughs> That's <laughs> funny. Shows you where we stand. Now, this but was with, done, what, in 2017, is, right? Um, 18, I think. I think I thought it was eight, 2018, 18, 2018, okay. Because it, yeah, because it was um, a series, so you're doing one show after another show after another show. Because it took about a year and a half to shoot everything. Oh my goodness! So it was over two years. Now, you know, a series, a lot of people, you know, we live in the day of binge watching, right? And so people yeah. are, are often going and they'll find a series like this and they'll really get uh, kind of into it. And, you know, these um, TV kind of outlets that we have now, like you, like we uh, read just a moment ago off uh, at the start of this program, uh, started this segment about the fact that you're on Amazon Prime, you're on Tubi, you're on Freevee. Uh, they'll load one show right after another, so somebody can watch this in short order. Watch mm-hmm. all season one in in uh, you know just a couple of days or less if they yeah. were really aiming yeah, for that. Yes, it's, it's it's about six and a half to seven hours, I think, if you were to sit and watch. Yeah the whole thing all the way through. So that might be a good day for somebody that's fighting a cold. (laughs) So they watch this, but you know, you mentioned a while ago, uh, the, these apocalyptic movies being about zombies and, and end of the world type of things. And, And I think it's like, you've said, it's really important to realize that we could have massive changes because you are exactly right. This is a culture that is addicted to technology and we all know that technology, the basis of all of that is our power grid, our electricity. And if that were gone, I mean, isn't it true, Nina, that when somebody loses their cell phone for a day, they feel completely lost. They feel like the world has gone apocalyptic, right? Yeah, exactly. In fact, that's one of the um, the ways the movie starts out or the TV series starts out is they're all on their devices. When they come out to the farm, they're going to be shooting these shows. They totally ignore each other. They're off in their own little world, and they cling to these little uh, devices. That's actually one of the reasons I wrote the script um, and for the series was because I, everywhere I'd look, I'd see people just with their noses and their phones. Even at dinner, they wouldn't even be talking with the person right across from them. And I said, what would happen if someone just kind of took that phone out of their hands? Or, oh, I know, let's say took electricity away so they can't even charge their phones. They can't even have the phone anymore. And that was the impetus for doing this. It sort of inspired me to get people thinking about how would you live without these devices? Oh, what so a fascinating concept. Yeah. And, and you're seeing as each one of them is going through different experiences as they are getting used to not having the devices. And it turns out very well for all of them, to be honest. You know, now this is an, like I said, a fascinating concept, because when you look at young people today, even even the 20-somethings, uh, they really don't remember a lot of uh, life before we had uh, uh, computers and technologies. I mean, some of them 20 years ago, I mean, computers were already a big thing. Those of us that are older, we can kind of get an idea of what it might be like. I grew up on a farm without any tech except uh, electricity. We did have that, but yeah. that was it. I mean, I, we didn't even have a TV back when I, I, and I remember the first television being brought in and thinking, what yeah, in the yeah, world oh, is yeah. that? But, but younger oh, people, yeah. can, they can't even go there. They have no idea of what life would be uh-huh. like without these devices. Yeah, no, that's exactly right. And, um, and and again, in a way, we wanted to make it like it's not going to be bad. It actually could be good. You know, if you're ready for it, if you if you've planned ahead, you know, people have whole house generators and you obviously have candles and stuff around. You use a gas stove so you don't you don't have to worry about if there's no electricity, you can still use gas. That's why I'm very against them outlawing gas stoves. 
because people would not be able to cook their food anymore if you didn't right. have that ability. Oh, yeah. So um, <clears throat> I think it just gets you thinking in those terms, like how how would I, I do this? One of the issues, for example, was and it's a very large house. I live on this farm. It's a beautiful lake and everything. Without electric electricity for the pump, you can't get the water. So they each have a bucket, and they've got to go down to the lake every day and get their own water for you know cleaning and pouring in the back of the toilet to get it to flush and cooking and washing dishes and everything. And it's stuff like that that you realize, oh, my gosh, I take all this for granted, mm-hmm. every bit of it. I go to a faucet. When I turn that faucet on, I expect water to come out. And if it doesn't, it's like, well, what happened here? So we tried to put in a lot of um, things like that happening as people are trying to figure out what's going on. So a woman goes into the bathroom to fill up some some bottles of water, and it doesn't work. The handles don't work. And you see her looking over at the toilet as the answer. And you go, oh, no, don't do that. But she cleverly takes the back off the toilet and then fills up the bottles with it. So I tried to put in things like that to get people to think outside the box. Like, okay, what would I really do if I was that desperate? How would yeah. I survive? And there's another scene where um, she's running through a uh, hardware store. Of course, the lights are off and it's mass pandemonium outside. And she's remembering the things that her prepper sister had told her she needs. And so you hear the prepper sister's voice in the back you know, saying, you know, you need to get this, you need to get that, don't forget the such and such. And she's running through the hardware store, picking out these things as as she's hearing her say that. So there are uh, lessons in it, you know, about how you could prepare to survive, how to get a go bag, how to, you know, I don't know, just plan ahead. And um, there's a, although we have the same ensemble cast for the cooks, there's another ensemble cast and it's for the preppers that live about five miles away. And the interesting thing is the girls are clearly know what a prepper is. They've never even heard the term. They're actually more prepared than the preppers were because the preppers did not count on the psychological and the emotional um, impact it would have on you mm. to have something yeah. like this happen. The girls, because they work on this TV show together, they're always problem solving. That's what you do when you're in production is you're in a problem solving situation. So they're always constantly solving problems. And the interesting thing too, is they didn't really like each other when the the cameras aren't rolling. They never talked to each other, didn't really know anything about each other. All millennials, they're all like 22 Mm -hmm. to about 26 or 27. But when the, the lights went off, they had to now figure out how to work together. So it was as though the the cameras are now turned on all the time for them, and they work like this well-oiled machine. They know each other very well. They know each other's strengths and weaknesses and stuff. They just never delved deeply into uh, who they were as a person, what their family was like, what what did they believe in, what's their favorite food, you know, little things like that. So it was a very interesting um, sort of a psychological trip of them evolving through this while the preppers are devolving through mm-hmm. it. And they're becoming very, um, I don't want to say animalistic or anything like that, but just very um, not not great. I don't, I don't make them mean or anything like that. But they're just not they're social. Just lost. Yeah. yeah, they're just, they're just lost. They don't know. Right. They don't have the answers. They're very um, distraught, basically, and they shouldn't be. They're preppers. They shouldn't be distraught. <laughs> now, I, I know there's also a strong faith-based element to it. How does that play in? Yeah, because when you've lost everything and you've got no place to turn but God, he's going to be there waiting mm-hmm. for you. And uh, and the girls discover this. One of the girls is a strong Christian, and one of the uh, refugees that makes it to the farm is also a Christian. In fact, he was uh, studying to be a pastor. So the two of them kind of become the, um, the Christ-centered uh, core I guess so that when people are having issues or having problems, they know to go to Sandy and Danny and, you know, they'll pray with them. They'll, you know, read the Bible with them. They'll do a Bible study, whatever they need to do to right. sort of talk that person off the ledge, so to speak. So, um, so it's a very sweet uh, relationship that they've got and we see them falling in love and, and, you know, eventually he asks her to marry him and it's just very, very sweet. It's, uh, 
Very wow. nice. But there's tragedy, obviously. you got to have conflict. you got to have tragedy, unfortunately. Right, right. But, but it's... But but there's a very strong, like I say, very strong spiritual element to the whole thing that gives you hope. And that was the bottom line. I really wanted it to be post-apocalyptic, but hopeful. I think that's well said. That's a good way to say that. You've got all of the elements of intrigue and interest that one would look for in a time like that, in a situation like this, as disastrous as that would be. But again, you've added the element of hope. And anytime the gospel is involved, anytime there's faith involved, there's going to be hope involved too. So that that goes oh, right yeah. in keeping, yeah. right? Yeah. In, in fact, there are a couple of scenes where um, someone is leading someone to the Lord in the sinner's prayer. Well, that's wonderful to see. I can't wait to get into this series. Again, it's called Daily Bread. And I know uh, it's no accident that you have such a strong cast of ladies. Again, you are, are the leader of this thing that is called the Renaissance Women. And so you yourself are referred to by many as being that very thing. I mean, you're quite at home behind the camera in filmmaking, but you're also quite at home on a bobcat doing a construction type of <laughs> work. So that's funny. You should say that I've been there on the Bobcat for the last three days We've been oh building it. We have such a drought. We had a small little pond, so we needed to fill it in before it rains to, you know, we're just going to create a stream through it, fill it in back, fill it, blah, blah, blah. So for three days I've been on this Bobcat and I'm like, oh, I'm so exhausted. Oh yeah. That's... <laughs> but I love it. It's, it's my other happy place. I really the, enjoy doing that the, kind of work. That is so great. Doing the work with your hands and, or in this case yeah. with a machine like that. With a machine. Yeah, exactly. Oh yeah, my. I, can, I don't even get my fingers dirty. It's great. <laughs> oh, I'll tell you. And you can do some serious work with those things too. So you had to get oh, pretty gosh. close to these ladies that were in the cast that you worked with side oh, yeah. by side. I mean, that had to be pretty fun. Oh, absolutely. And they became very close too. I mean, they really were like sisters and, and we lived in the house that we were filming in. So we lived here and it became, it's almost like you just like a reality show in a sense. They knew their lines so perfectly. They could run their lines together. They would stay in character the whole time. Mm -hmm. And uh, it was really pretty fascinating. So really you really wrote fun. the whole and thing out, and you produced it, right? Yeah. Yes, I wrote, produced, and directed the whole thing. Wow. And uh, we're anxious to get episode, I mean, episode, well, episode one of season two. We're anxious to get that going because uh, we do have a good fan base and everybody's excited to know what, what happens to the girls. Of course. Yeah, this is great. Nina May has been my guest here, and this is called Daily Bread. And again, you can find it by going to Amazon Prime. Start there. Also on Freebie, which is where I saw part of episode one, and it's available there, which is uh, they're doing a lot with Amazon Prime right now. That channel is. Mm -hmm. And uh, there are others as well. Nina May, the writer and director and the producer of Daily Bread. Thank you for being with me today. Oh, you bet. My pleasure. We look Bless forward to all. catching back in with you. And I know that next time we've got to talk about all the news. Hopefully we'll know more then about this January 6th thing, because you were quite involved in that as well. And uh, you were actually on, on the scene doing something we, with video. We were then. filming. Yeah. yeah, we were filming the process. Yeah. So, so I had my, my crew there with me. So, yeah, we've got to touch base on that uh, in the next uh, month or so here to, once we get uh, some more news going on. Nina May, thanks for being okay. with me today. You bet. Absolutely. Our pleasure. Bless you. Thank you. And we'll be right back. EC Waters Air Conditioning and Heat serves all your comfort needs. With over 40 years experience, EC Waters is a top train comfort specialist, earning customers for life with integrity. No wonder EC Waters Air Conditioning and Heat has earned a 4.6 or higher out of 5 rating and reviews across all major online platforms. For all your comfort needs, call 407-603-9144 or visit ecwaters.com. Boy, last night's opener in the NFL brought a bit of a shock. Rob Motti is the official writer for the NFL 
For the Associated Press, he's also the host of Faith on the Field, a program that this week is going to be a must-listen with all that's going on. The start of the NFL season, an opener last night between the Lions and the Super Bowl champs, the Kansas City team that I think would have uh, been expected to win that game. And here we go, man. We're off to the races. Right, Rob Motti? Yeah, Mike, and uh, it was it was a little bit of a surprise for some people, but Kansas City went into that game last night missing their number one receiver, tight end, Travis Kelsey, who may be the, the greatest of all time at that position. And they also didn't have Chris Jones, their all-pro defensive tackle, uh, de- defensive end, and, and that kind of hurt this team uh, along the defensive line. And certainly Patrick Mahomes, without his weapons, he had a, a big drop by Kadarius Toney, and then one of the interceptions, that was returned for a touchdown was a perfect pass that Mahomes put in Tony's hands and it popped out, went to Brian Branch, the rookie for the Lions, and he returned it for a touchdown. But you got to give the, the Detroit Lions a ton of credit. This is a team that has come into the season with a lot of hype, high expectations, which they are not used to in the city of Detroit for the Lions football team. They finished strong last year did not make the playoffs, and, and they go into the defending Super Bowl champion. They watch them raise that banner in raucous Arrowhead Stadium. There was a ton of Lions fans, which was surprising to see that they were able to get in on a, a banner-raising game, but they, they, they went in there. They were not scared. They were not afraid, and, and they won that football game. Jared Goff played well, and uh, I don't think this is going to impact the Chiefs in a big way. I see them rebounding once they get Kelsey back and oh, yeah. Chris Jones it, it, once he ends his holdout. But uh, it, it was a, it was it lived up to all everyone's been waiting for football for how many months now, Mike? <laughs> yeah, right. Six months, and you finally get a <laughs> game, right. and, it, and it lives up to it. You know that it really did live up to it. Now I didn't get to watch the whole game. I was up early, early this morning, so I went to bed. But when I went to bed, the Chiefs were ahead. And I would not have expected the turnout. I, in my mind, what the way it was going to go, Rob. I bet you other people did this as well. They they were ahead at halftime. I would have thought they would have gone up maybe another touchdown in the third quarter, and maybe one or two in the fourth to end up with a blowout against the Lions. But you know, I have to say this: it was pretty exciting to watch what I did watch in the first half. And not only was it exciting to watch. But also the announcers for the game that were calling the game, they were given some pretty serious cred to the Lions, weren't they? Yeah, absolutely. Mike Tirico, who does a terrific job for NBC, and Chris Collingsworth, who yeah. uh, I think Chris, every game he covers, he's watching the greatest player in football, and he makes them have to be that way. <laughs> but the Lions deserve that credit. Dan Campbell, head coach, comes in. He gets them to buy in. They have a rough first season. They finished strong last year, and here they are in a division in the NFC North where Aaron Rodgers has moved on. It is no longer going to go through Green Bay, and we know the Minnesota Vikings won that division last year, but they lost in the first round of the playoffs at home. So it's wide open. It's up for grabs, and the Lions got that firm uh, belief, that mentality that why not us? It, it's ours for the taking. We, we've we been working for this, preparing for this. We've got talent uh, on, on offense, and uh, I thought they'd actually have a little bit m- an easier time moving the ball. They end up with 14 points offensively. The other seven, they scored on, on a defensive turnover on the pick six. But I think the offense is still going to find its stride. They got a nice running game with Jameer Gibbs and David Montgomery, a nice one-two punch. And uh, Jared Goff has really revived his career in Detroit. When he was traded, Mike, to the Lions for Matthew Stafford, and it, the, the Rams had to give up extra picks in order to get Matthew Stafford so that the Lions would just take Jared Goff and his salary off their hands. That's how he was looked at as an afterthought that he was going to be a stopgap quarterback in Detroit and they would eventually draft the quarterback of the future. And, and he just blocked out all the noise, all the criticism, all the naysayers. And he went there and he's done a terrific job. He made the Pro Bowl last year and, and he showed last night uh, under pressure. Uh, in the big spotlight games that he can thrive. And he's on an incredible run of not having thrown an interception. I think he's the third uh, longest streak currently in the NFL history without throwing an interception. So uh, kudos to to Jared Goff for kind of reviving his career in Detroit and, and proving everyone wrong. 
You know, you mentioned something that has happened to so many teams. I know I'm a big college fan and watching the Gators play. This has happened more times than we had ever liked to imagine where a perfect pass is made and the receiver, all they have to do is close their hands around that football and hang on, baby, here we come. And that thing pops right out and it's a pick six. That happens more times than it should, and that really can deflate a team, right? Yeah, absolutely. And it's it's unfortunate for quarterbacks that that goes on their stat line. It doesn't go on the receiver's stat line. That's There's right. no such thing on a receiver's stat line that says pick six or interception when it's completely like you watched that play last night, and, and Collinsworth made a point uh, to, to emphasize it a few times during the broadcast. That's a perfect pass that Mahomes put – uh, hit to t- get Terrius Tony in stride exactly where he had to put the ball in his hands, popped out, and uh, that's that's football. It's one bounce here, a couple inches there, whatever it may be. You know that old uh, cliche, any given Sunday, it really does apply in the NFL. Last year we saw more games that were closely contested than any season uh, prior to that, games that came down to the wire, comebacks in the fourth quarter. And the league thrives on that. They want parity. They want teams to go out there and their fan base to stay locked in watching that game for all four quarters, not to tune out at halftime. And when you see comebacks and teams overcoming big deficits or uh, teams who are unexpected underdogs who come out there and win these games, it just keeps everyone engaged. And uh, this this is what the NFL is all about. And, And we're off to an incredible start. So we've uh, kicked it off last night. The NFL season is here. Uh, let's speak uh, uh, to the fans for a moment who may not have been really super big fans, but they love football. Maybe they're like me. They're, they've watched a lot of college football. Uh, give us a good compelling reason right now why they need to dial in on the NFL this year. Well, if you like competition, if you like, if you like to watch sport is you know the, the way I outlined it with close competitive unpredictable that kind of uh, action-packed event where you, you you really don't know like you take you take a Super Bowl champion like the pa- Patrick Mahomes and Kansas City Chiefs and think they're going to win and they don't now you look around the league and you see these other teams that are uh, a ton of talent you, you look at the Buffalo Bills and then, then you look at what's happening in New York with the Jets, and Aaron Rodgers comes in, and, yeah. and he's a guy who I think he he appeals to uh, a lot of. Uh, although Aaron at one point Mike was a a believer, and now he's kind of gone uh, astray. He mm. kind of appeals to the conservative conservative in that he he spoke out against the vaccine. He he took a lot of heat for that uh, from a a lot of media, a lot of people who were were not happy that he called himself, said he was immunized, but he wasn't necessarily vaccinated. And I give him a ton of credit for being a free thinker for someone who goes out there and and does not buy into what everyone's trying to sell. And uh, I'm excited to see what he can do in New York. They haven't won a Super Bowl since Joe Namath guaranteed a victory over the Baltimore Colts uh, 50-something years ago. Oh, my ago, goodness. You're going way back there, my friend. <laughs> Only yeah. people like me remember that one. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, so so to see to see if he can go in there and, and turn this team that's been a perennial loser for the past decade or so into a winner, into a contender, man, uh, that's fascinating. That, to me, is is great storyline right there. And, and even if you're not into the the competition of the sport or don't understand it, but you like to follow uh, drama, that right there is, is high drama. And I watched a little bit of the Jets on Hard Knocks and, and what they were, mm-hmm. uh, kind of the cameras following them around. So there's a ton of pressure uh, on Aaron and in New York. And then there's America's team. There's the Dallas Cowboys where Jerry Jones goes out, Mike, and makes a trade for a backup quarterback. Uh, a few a few weeks ago, without even telling his coach and general manager, and then he says, "Well, I'm I'm the owner. I know what I I know what I need to do." So there's pressure on Mike McCarthy, the head coach in Dallas, and Dak Prescott, the quarterback for the Cowboys, to win and win now. I had to put out my preseason predictions uh, last week, I think it was on Thursday or Friday, and and uh, I picked the Dallas Cowboys and the Cincinnati Bengals to make it to the Super Bowl. I had the Jets and Aaron Rodgers wow. in the AFC Championship. And I took the Bengals to win it, and then they go and give Joe Burrow yesterday 
uh, $275 million contract. Unreal, isn't it? It's un- guaranteed, highest paid player ever. Oh, and the, those numbers, they just don't even compute. I mean, we have to remember that this is a game. This is not like world leadership here, for crying out loud. But my goodness, uh, that's quite a contract. Yeah, and uh, he, he's got somehow salaries in the NFL have risen to the point where I believe it's 60% the highest paid quarterbacks numbers have gone up in less than a decade mm. from the 22, 23 million per year range, which is no chump change, Mike. No, uh, no, and that's not bad. <laughs> yeah. The 55 million is the highest paid. You've got a handful of guys, Justin Herbert, um, Patrick, well, Patrick's actually considered underpaid compared to these guys. Jalen yeah, yeah. Hurts, Lamar Jackson, Joe Burrow, all these guys, Herbert, they're all now up above the $50 million per year range, which is – its uh, these are staggering, mind-blowing numbers. Uh, and then when you look around and, and you see what they got to do, they, they got to go out there and perform and deliver a championship. And if they don't, their fan bases and, and, and their ownership is certainly going to put it on them. You know, it would be an interesting stat to find out how many of these high-paid uh, uh, players like that never get a Super Bowl ring. Uh, but they're still paid these enormous salaries. And then you've got guys that have led their teams to the Super Bowl, like you said, that by comparison are underpaid. Yeah. Uh, when, when Mahomes signs that contract uh, several years ago, and, and all of a sudden for five, six quarterbacks are all passing him by. But uh, I think he's trying to take a page out of Tom Brady's uh, playbook. And, and Tom uh, was the greatest quarterback of all time and n- never was the highest paid because he wanted to make sure in an era of salary cap, Mike, that the team could field a solid group around him. So he, he would take less money so other players can get paid, other quality players. That's right. And uh, I, I'm not going to say that $45 million that Patrick Mahomes is making isn't much, but in comparison to some of these other guys, he's slightly underpaid. And uh, I think he's content staying there because he wants to make sure they got a contract situation right now with Chris Jones on the defensive line. He's, he's one of the star players on that defensive line. They need him to perform. They need him to be in and end that holdout. And uh, they got to pay him as well. So I think Patrick realizes that too. So uh, it that, that'll be interesting to see how it plays out. How many of these teams in a salary cap era who are paying a major portion of that cap money is going to the quarterback can field the best team around them because it, every quarterback, as as they all well know, is one play away from being on the sideline, and then it, it goes to the backup, and, and you got to have a strong team around that guy. That's right. You got to be ready for it because those things aren't. It's not a matter of if, but when that happens in this day and age. Hey, man, it's always great to talk with you, Robbie. I know faith on uh, on the field is coming up tomorrow, and so what's the big news in thirty seconds? What's happening there? Uh, we're going to have, so we're going to dive into some fantasy football talk for Faith on the Field and, and bring in Andy Holloway from Fantasy Footballers, a very successful podcast and a strong uh, man of faith. So we dive into a little bit, give some fans a little bit of advice on, on what they should do, what they look at, how they go about uh, attacking the season, picking players. It, it's a fun way. It's a fun exercise for a lot of people. As long as they take it, it's for amusement purposes only, Mike. That's right. Well, listen, this has been fun. I know you've got another call to take. Rob, thanks for being with us one more time. As always, my pleasure, my man. Rob Motti, the head writer for the AP, for the NFL. Thank you for being with us. And we'll see you next time, friends, right here on Afternoons with Mike.